Good morning. You know, I have often said that I would rather speak to 500 than to one. I'm not sure how many I'm speaking to, so I, I hope it's close to 500 or at least a couple of hundred, but uh, this is unusual. So thank you for joining us uh, online uh, here at Hope Chapel. Uh, my name is Jim Osborne. I'm an elder here at Hope Chapel. I'm part of the preaching team. I'm also a physician practicing locally. I do indeed hope and pray that you are all well and keeping safe. So this morning I'm going to read through the scripture and um, then we will explore the the passage and what it has for us. Um, And so let's read the word of God. You can find it in your worship guide or you can follow along in your Bible at home. Revelation 2 verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who would hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same name hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on the stone which no one knows, but he who receives it. Great. Sorry, folks. I apparently didn't put the uh, uh, thing on. Okay. Uh, sorry. This, they were uh, waving me. Okay. My fault. Um, that was the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true and given to us in love. As you know, most of the time here at Hope Chapel, if you've been here before, we usually try to connect today's message with what we've been saying over the last few weeks to try to connect things to ground us. And, and boy, do we need connection now more than ever. But if I were to do that today, just start out that way, it would be to ignore the elephant that's here in our virtual room. It's a huge understatement to say that these are the most unusual of times. I have actually often reflected over my life how little disruption most of us have had in our lives. This is not true for all of you, as some of you have immigrated from another country to our own. This is not true for all of you because you have had wrenching personal circumstances that have disrupted your lives. But as a society, for most of us, for most of our lives, and, and mine's getting pretty long now, there's been little disruption compared to other times and other cultures in history and even during our time. And that's now all changed. Seemingly almost overnight. So I want to make three quick observations before I get to the actual sermon. The first is that although everything that is changing around us, God is not changing. Now is the time to lean in on God and to lean in on and support one another. Can't do that quite literally right now, but, you know, do it virtually in some other ways that you find possible. The second observation is that some anxiety and even fear is okay. 
At least I hope it's okay because I've had some. We don't know the next steps. We literally don't know what tomorrow or next week or next month or next year will bring and what we will need to do. Not that we ever really do, but we just think we do. But that's okay. God knows what is coming and he loves us and he'll care for us. Again, now is the time to lean in on God and lean in on and support one another. The third observation is that we all all have a part to play in this. All of us have a role to play in trying to flatten the curve in our community. Social distancing, as painful as it is for many of you and me, is truly gospel living right now. That is the work of the flour- that is to work for the flourishing of the city to stay away from one another. That is so paradoxical and so strange, but that's what we're called to do. And then let me do one more thing before we look at our text. And much on a much brighter note, let me announce that Nanette and I are again proud grandparents. Hazel Virginia Osborne was born Thursday morning at 4 a.m. For those of you who are interested in such things, she was 7 pounds, 15 ounces, and 19 inches long. I'm a doctor. I don't even really know what that means, but I I didn't take care of children, so it's okay. We're continuing our Lenten series, and we're using the second chapter of Revelation and calling our series The Encouragement and Warnings of the Church Then and Now to help us think through issues that confront us individually and corporately. Todd told us a few weeks ago that we're deadheading the flowers to make them blossom, considering where God needs to prune us to make them blossom. I'm feeling pruned. Uh, We need to guard the truth of the gospel. We need to work to keep our affections on Christ. Remember the joy set before us. Daniel discussed gospel purity, how our actions should reflect who we are, how we are all called to repentance. Our text today can be summarized in three words. Approval, accusation, and admonition. Let's look at each one. The church of Pergamum first receives from Jesus a word of approval. Verses 12 and 13, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Now, in order to understand these first two verses, you need to understand a little bit about Pergamum. Pergamum was a city in what is now the Asian side of Turkey. And I'm going to show you a couple of maps. The first one, you're going to see Turkey on the right, Greece on the left. And between them, you see the Aegean Sea. Istanbul, where the circle is, most of you know that Istanbul straddles Europe and Asia. You literally on one side of town in Europe, it's another side of town, it's Asia. How weird is that? And we think it's strange when a town crosses a county line. You know, this town crosses a continental line. And the Bosporus Strait there at Istanbul, connecting the Black Sea above and the Aegean Sea below, is the border. A little bit further to the, uh, let's see, that would be the southwest. You see a narrowing. Uh, I put a purple arrow there. That's the Strait of the Dardanelles. For those of you who are historians who saw the Battle of Gallipoli on TV or at the movie theater, That's where the Battle of Gallipoli occurred. It's also a border between Europe and Asia. Now, you also see that red arrow. That's Avalek. 
and then a town called Bergama. You see that circle. Going to the next map, we see Avalok again. That's still the red arrow. And then the town here called Bergama. Okay, now it's circled. Sorry, I was a little ahead of myself there. Zooming once again, we see the ancient city of Pergamon, or Pergamum, which is north of Bergama. So that's a little orientation of where we are. We're in the Asian side of Turkey. Pergamum was called the greatest city in Asia Minor. Pergamum had the first temple dedicated to Caesar, and the people there were rabid promoters of the emperor, imperial cult. Not knowing that I would ever preach this sermon, Nanette and I visited Pergamum in 2013. I'll give you a sense of it with a few pictures. Here you see the site of the ancient city, and you can see Bergama off there in the distance. Over on the right, there's a good picture of the amphitheater, a staple of many ancient Greek and Roman cities. And then the next two pictures, you see the remains of the temples that were on this site. And you can begin to understand this was truly a remarkable place. Look at the scroll work at the top of these columns. Just consider how they got those stone blocks up on those columns. They didn't have cranes. I mean, holy cow, how did they do that? It's all pretty amazing. Now, for Christians living here, Jesus first has an encouraging word. I know where you live. That's not an accusatory word. It's, it's a comforting word. He's saying, I see where you live. Jesus knows that they're living where the throne of Satan is. What's the meaning of the throne of Satan? Well, there's some debate and various interpretations that have been put forth, but I'm not going to review all of them. I'll just tell you that the most common interpretation that carries the most weight and is most appropriate for the history of Pergamum and for this passage is that it was, in fact, Pergamum was, in fact, the center of emperor worship, and that was Satan's throne. In pre-Roman times, Pergamum had temples to Zeus, Athena, Dionysus, and Asclepius. But when the Romans conquered Pergamum in 129 BC, they built a temple that was ultimately dedicated to Emperor Caesar Augustus. They introduced the worship of Caesar. Jesus is telling the church in Pergamum, I know that you're living in the middle of the hotbed of emperor worship. And despite this, Jesus says he commends them for holding fast to his name and not denying the faith. As many of you know, throughout the Roman world, those who didn't bend the knee and worship Caesar were considered both traitors and heretics and would have been persecuted and even killed. You see, the worship of Caesar was not simply acknowledging that his government was legitimate or that he was the civil government. As we'll see shortly, Christians would have been commanded to recognize that. Emperor worship, though, in the Roman world was to proclaim that Caesar was Lord or Savior. And no believer could ever do that. The persecution had resulted in the death of at least one faithful witness, Antipas, about whom we know nothing else. Doubtless some others died. Doubtless many others suffered. So the church is approved for resisting emperor worship. Quickly, though, Jesus turns to an accusation. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you, have, so you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Jesus accuses them of doing a few things that are not right. One is that some have held fast to the teachings of Balaam. 
and others have held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Let's talk about the latter first. Who were the Nicolaitans? Short answer, we don't know. All right, longer answer, they may have been some of the same people who were also teaching the, uh, the ways of Balaam. We're just not really sure. And this is complicated by the fact that the Nicolaitans are only mentioned here and back in verse 6, and secular history really tells us nothing about them. So we don't really know much else about them. But let's turn to the teaching of Balaam. Many of you, like me, are familiar with the story of Balaam and Balak. And if you do, I hope you're as puzzled as I am, kind of confused by this reference. For those of you who don't know the story of Balaam and Balak, let me quickly summarize it. The relevant passages are from Numbers 22 through 25. The Israelites have been following the pillar of fire at night and the cloud during the day, during the 40 years in the wilderness. And they're now getting close to the end of that time. And Israel starts up to move toward Canaan, toward the promised land, to enter it as God has promised. On their way up, they actually come up kind of the eastern side of the Jordan River in the Dead Sea, called the Transjordan. Looking on a map, I wouldn't say that was exactly the direct route, but God was leading them that way. And in that area, there are three nations, the Midianites, the Moabites, and the Edomites. Balak is the king of Moab. Balak is already aware that the Israelites have defeated the Amalekites and the Amorites during their migration, and they're now coming to Moab. Balak, in league with the Midianites, calls for Balaam, a non-Israelite seer or prophet, a man who is hearing the word of God, and he asks Balaam to curse the Israelites. Balaam tells Balak that he will say what God tells him to say. And of course, as you know, it is blessings that Balaam pronounces over Israel because that's what he hears from God, not curses. Balak was not very happy. And part of this great story, and many of you kids know this, is that the donkey on which Balaam rides is actually more attuned into the spiritual battle that's going on than Balaam is. So Balaam blesses Israel, and repeatedly so. And that's, to me, where the confusion comes in, because holding to the teaching of Balaam in this part of Numbers would have been to bless Israel, in essence, to bless the church. But the passage says, the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. A blessing is not a stumbling block. Well, as it turns out, and I'd never caught this as I read through numbers in the past, Balaam continued to advise Balak. And we see later in Numbers 25 and in Numbers 31 that although the Midianites and the Moabites were unable to stop Israel by military force, Balaam lured them into committing adultery with Midianite women, eating meat offered to idols, and worshiping pagan gods. So the teachings of Balaam were not so much doctrine as practice. Indulging in sexual immorality, eating of food sacrificed to idols, the worship of these idols, that was the stumbling block that Balak, following Balaam's advice, placed before the people of Israel to make them fall into sin. Now it becomes easier to see what Jesus is referring to here. Emperor worship in Roman times included various practices that should have been avoided by the Christians in Pergamum. Animals were sacrificed to the emperor in the temples. Ritual prostitution was practiced in the Roman temples. Sexual acts that were performed under religious pretexts. And those following the teachings of Balaam and possibly also the Nicolaitans basically were saying that it's okay to participate in these cultural activities around you. They may have been saying this to help promote the personal safety of the people in the church. 
because otherwise they would have been found at odds with the culture and possibly persecuted. They may have been saying this because their view of the gospel and Christian liberty was distorted and led to license. In other words, if we are forgiven, go ahead and sin. It doesn't matter. And they may have been saying it for both reasons. And they could have made that sound so reasonable and logical. So I hope you see the irony here. The believers at Pergamum were approved by Jesus for resisting emperor worship unto death. We might call that resisting Satan, the roaring lion. But they were accused of allowing false teaching and practice into the church, failing to resist Satan as he came as a cunning serpent. And then Jesus has a word word of admonition, of warning. Therefore, repent or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus calls on the church to repent or else he will come quickly. Now, this coming is not the second coming, which is the climax of Revelation. It's not as though a lack of repentance is going to cause Jesus to return. This coming in the Greek, though, is actually in the present tense. This coming is a soon-to-arrive judgment to the church. Notice that he calls the church in Pergamum to repentance first. But he will make war with the followers of Balaam, just as he did in the days of the Israelites. Because you see this end of the story of Balaam. Even though he was the one who was a prophet of God, God ultimately commands Israel to kill him. Balaam did not have to wait till after death to receive his due judgment. He received it in his lifetime. So Jesus is saying to the believers at Pergamum, they could expect judgment now and not just later. But then it's comforting that in the midst of this admonition, God offers a promise to him who overcomes. That to the one who resists not only Satan, the roaring lion, but also Satan, the cunning serpent, to the one who dies like Antipas, or the one who resists the infiltration of false doctrine and practice into the church, the promise is the hidden manna and the white stone. You may recall in Exodus 16 that God commanded that some of the manna which fed Israel during the wilderness wanderings was to be put into the Ark of the Covenant in a jar. Rabbinic commentaries throughout the year state that the Jews expected to be nourished by this same manna in the age to come. So to receive the promised hidden manna is to be nourished by God in the age to come. The imagery of the white stone and the name on it is a little less clear. White stones were sometimes used as tickets to events. Maybe that's what it meant. I mean, they didn't have Ticketmaster back then. White stones were also used by judges of the day to Reflect exoneration of the accused. If you were not guilty, the judge would give you a white stone. Other interpretations have also been given. Suffice it to say, the hidden manna and the white stone are a promise of blessing by God in this life and in the future to the one who resists or having failed resistance to the one who repents. So in this passage, we have approval, accusation, and admonition. But now, How do we consider application in our day, in our place, and in our time? I have a simple conclusion. Looking first to the political arena, one can hardly read this passage and not consider how it might apply in our day. And have a simple conclusion. Avoid emperor worship. Now, you may think you know what I mean. But I'm not sure that you do. Because you may think I'm aiming that comment solely at one person, and I'm not. Emperor worship is to speak and act as though a political leader or political party is your savior. That everything they say we should do, we should do. 
That everything the leader or the party says is right and true. That everyone who says a word against any view of the leader or of the party is wrong. Such a person is a traitor and a heretic to the true belief. And don't you know people who are on both sides of the political aisle that are this way? Proclaiming that anyone who says anything against the leader of the party is a traitor and a heretic. More disturbing, I have seen believers do this as well and even church leaders. I have really bad news for us all. And it shouldn't really surprise us. No political leader and no political party speaks for God. And frankly, if one claims to or if one is proclaimed as doing so by believers or non-believers, I have some very strong advice for you. Run screaming. Or that it would be so easy that we should simply decide which party spoke for God. You know, this shouldn't surprise us. These are fallible human beings and fallible human institutions. They're going to be wrong somewhere. One need only look at how each side regards human life. One side supports the killing or allows at least the killing of unborn children. The other side supports the deprivation of simple human rights to immigrants and aliens and sends some back to their deaths. What's a believer to do? Indeed, what is a follower of Christ supposed to do in regard to politics and civil government? Well, as I said, avoid emperor worship yourself and encourage others to do the same. Admonish them if you have to, calmly and with humility, but admonish them. What does that look like today, emperor worship? It usually is not animal sacrifices or a lot of ritual prostitution. In my opinion, actually, emperor worship today most often takes the form of, big word here, ad hominem arguments. Something much more subtle, but just as life-harming as sacrifices and prostitution. And I'm appalled at how often I hear such arguments from believers. Now, you actually know what an ad hominem argument is. You might be Googling it right now, but don't bother. I'm going to tell you. You might not remember the term, but you know what it is. Consider two people, Joe and Mike. Joe makes a statement about something. Mike disagrees with Joe and tells Joe that he's incorrect about that and tries to correct his thinking. Joe replies by attacking Mike's character or his heritage or something else personal about Mike. Notice Joe never addresses the issue because Joe can't tolerate the thought that his position is wrong. Taken into the political realm, Joe can't tolerate the thought that the position of his leader or his party is wrong. Now, you know, I expect some such stuff from non-believers. But when I hear of believers or even church leaders engaging in this, I'm appalled. And you know the irony here? This is the very thing you teach your children not to do. Don't call people names, right? That's what you teach your children to do. Kids, you may be watching. Don't they say that to you? But notice what we get to do as adults. We get to call people's names. And apparently, it's, it's especially sophisticated if you do that in the midst of, a, of an argument. This is just wrong. If you ever find yourself doing it, and, and I'm sure I do it some, recognize it and repent because all people are made in the image of God and deserve to be respected. And when you hear fellow believers engage in this, or if you hear me engage in this, and it can be subtle, and you may even agree with the position, but if you hear us do this, don't encourage it. Don't laugh. On the contrary, calmly and humility remind each of us that all people are made in the image of God and deserve to be respected. My opinion is that these ad hominem character attacks are a large part of how we have gotten where we are in the political discourse that we have. And frankly, 
I think believers and non-believers can agree about that. Then recognize and don't be disappointed that no political party and no political leader has a lock on God's truth. I've already commented on this briefly. I don't think any spirit-led church has a lock on God's truth. I think we are all going to be surprised when we get to the new heavens and the new earth and the new earth. And we're going to discover that we had some very dearly held, but, but not necessary for salvation, truths, pieces of theological truth that will turn out to be not true. Very humbling. Very... I just can't wait to find out. And I remember as a new believer in my late teens, as I began to grasp the teachings of God's word, I remember how disappointed I was that there were no leaders that seemed to be living and speaking consistent with God's truth. I mean, we're in a Christian nation. I was just so disappointed. Leaders in political parties weren't consistent with God's truth when I was 16, and they're still not. We should not speak as though they are. Now, having said that we are to avoid emperor worship and no party or leader has a lock on truth, we do need to recognize that civil government is legitimate. It's a ministry of God. That's what Romans 13 is all about. And some of it, if you read through it, may even seem to contradict what I just said. Romans 13, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Being in subjection to governing authorities means following the civil law. Disagreeing with a politician or a party stance is not resisting authority. These passages are about living civilly in civil society, not about worshiping the emperor. Verse 7 summarizes it well. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Shortly, uh, quickly put, pay your taxes, fear the law if you break it, honor and don't worship your leaders, even if you disagree with them. That's the relationship of the believer to government and political leaders. The reality, though, is that our opposition today is not really in the political realm. You might think it is, but it's not. It's a much more subtle infiltration of cultural and worldly ideas into our thinking, into our theology, and into our actions. Our opposition today is not the roaring lion, it's the wily serpent. There is so much that's beautiful and wonderful about human culture and this culture we find ourselves immersed in and with which we must interact, but there is danger as well. And I'm going to suggest to you that over the last three weeks, you have already heard great wisdom in how to, resu- how to resist that subtle infiltration of the world's ideas into our thinking, theology, and actions. Two weeks ago, Daniel's discussion of modernism, postmodernism, and what was a new one for me, post-postmodernism, was very helpful in guiding our thinking about cultural thought norms and, that can and have infiltrated the church. And if you don't recall that sermon, I invite you to go back on the church website and listen to it. We have to learn how to interact with non-believers and current cultural thought while maintaining biblical truths. That is not necessarily easy. It is hard work. The concepts are difficult and the discussions can be hard. And it's best done in community where the correction and encouragement can be found. After Daniel's sermon, our community group spent some time trying to unpack that more. And it was a lot of hard work. There was a lot of difficult concepts going around, difficult to articulate, difficult sometimes to understand. But as we did so, we got more clarity. It did raise a few more questions, but that's okay. We don't have to have every answer. 
But as we interact with others influenced by our culture, we must interact with their view of truth, but never compromise the biblical view of absolute truth. Three weeks ago then, Jake preached and used his experience as a chaplain in Afghanistan as he asked, is anything too hard for God? And if you don't recall that one, I suggest you go back and listen to it. And what did he say? He said, go small before you go big. He reminded us that Jeremiah focused first on the Lord and then on what he was called to do. He told us that the world needs is our presence and not our projects. And that's probably more true today than it was three weeks ago. We have to be creative about how to accomplish that presence, perhaps. But that's what our community needs. And I believe most importantly, he told us to create margins and to create time to connect with Christ. This is a time of chaos and profound disruption of our daily lives. And Satan, the author of chaos, would like nothing more than for us to become inconsistent in the small things in our walks with Jesus, thus making it easier for the thoughts and actions of the world to infiltrate into our thinking and theology. For all of us, everything is turned upside down. All of our routines have changed. Kids are at home and not in school. Their sports have been canceled. People are working at home or not at all. We can't go to the gym and work out. We can't share coffee or meals with fellow believers in restaurants and in homes. On and on and on. Our routines have been completely shattered. And if you're like me, I kind of like routines. For all of us, we see these confusing news reports and analyses that on the one hand can cause us to fear and on the other hand tell us maybe this is much ado about nothing. What do we do in the midst of all this stuff? Now more than ever, you have to purposely take time to connect with Jesus. You have to reestablish that schedule. You reestablish that time. Read the word daily. Pray daily. Find time and ways to pray with others. Consider a time of fasting. Be faithful to our church community in every way you can. We need to be faithful in virtual gatherings like this for our worship. We need to be faithful in community group. I know most of the community group leaders have arranged or are arranging for groups to meet virtually. We met by WebEx last week, believe it or not. It was really kind of cool. It worked pretty well. We need to be faithful in giving, as you've already heard, both to the church and to those who have needs around us. And we need to be faithful in serving. And we'll have to be creative as we do so. We're all going to be needing to create new rhythms and routines to connect us to Christ and to one another in order to deal with the chaos and fear that is about us and possibly in us. And as we do that, we will, in fact, be avoiding that subtle infiltration of the world's views and actions into our lives. We have looked at an extraordinary passage at an extraordinary time in our history. I started my study of this passage two months ago. That was a lifetime ago. The church at Pergamum had done a great thing in resisting the cultural norm of emperor worship, but it had succumbed to the infiltration of other thoughts into the life of the church. We, too, are to avoid political worship and the name-calling that ensues, and we have to stay faithful in the small things to keep non-biblical cultural ideas out of our worldviews. 
And as we stay faithful in the small things, we can expect that God will meet us and guide us and protect us because he cares for us. Don't lose sight of that in the midst of this chaos and uncertainty. I started today by observing that none of us really know what's coming next. I said, we don't know what the next steps are. We literally don't know what tomorrow or next week or next month or next year will bring and what we will need to do. As I've thought about that feeling of uncertainty, I think it may be a small taste of what the exiles thought as they were carried from Jerusalem to Babylon. And what did God say to the exiles through Jeremiah in this time of even more profound uncertainty? He said, don't despair, but live. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search me with all your heart. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen.